Support for this podcast comes from Vasant TV. Catch Vasant TV's Sangeeta Swarangal every day at 5:30 p.m. from 17 December. Welcome to In Concert, Hindu's podcast on the performing arts. Our guest today is an artist who has been pushing boundaries throughout her illustrious career in dance. Today, she is one of the sharpest voices on the art form's past. and its future while simultaneously carving out a new idiom in dance for her performances in concert is happy to welcome the one and only anita ratnam anita ratnam thank you so much for joining us welcome to the podcast thank you jent right so there is a lot that i want to talk to you about your own interpretation of bharatanatyam your own journey in dance but uh, we are in december and we are doing this podcast during the chennai margadi season and i thought a good place to start therefore was to ask you about your thoughts about the position accorded to dance performances during the season and how it's evolved over the years um is there enough space given for dance does it suffer in comparison to the attention given to musical performances well i think um it there are many questions in that one question yes i'm sorry yes uh, traditionally the december margari season was considered a music festival season so music always had the preeminence dance um, was added and slowly gained in prominence and uh, and its appearance so now it seems to be in chennai that there is a music festival happening and in parallel there's a dance festival happening for instance let me tell you there are some sabhas who who sort of uh, give the first uh, two weeks of december just to music from morning to night then the music ends and then it's only dance from morning to night but uh, today as we're speaking 2019 on the cusp of 2020 i don't think it has rained so much dance as it has in the 75 80 90 years that we've had and it's also particularly bharatanatyam centric however cosmopolitan you think madras chennai has become right in margari it just seems to be that they welcome bharatanatyam bharatanatyam and more bharatanatyam very few performances of other dance styles are seen in terms of spaces uh we haven't built enough uh, appropriate spaces for dance we have the same kind of stage for both music and dance so music of course we just need acoustic uh, fidelity yeah. we need the speakers we need all that in dance we also need lighting we need to have a stage at the right height so the audience can appreciate the performing artist in music you can actually close your eyes even if you're in an auditorium and actually enjoy the music in dance you cannot so our spaces still have to uh, be spruced up they have to be updated with uh, the right kind of lighting because the classical dance form is uh, predominantly taught as a solo form right and while the demand for solo dance is decreasing just because of uh, today media television netflix amazon prime are watching the ipad watching our screen we are watching so much information where the screen is almost perfect 
from the television serials to movies everything is already storyboarded and set yeah. so when you see something on the stage where you see a torn curtain something not working something sloppy now the audience is not willing to accept that sloppiness in dance yeah yeah and so you know we we spoke a little bit earlier about how you were saying that um there's quite a saturation of dance performances now more than you've ever seen um how does that how has that really affected uh, the quality aspect do you still think uh, that that kind of format where you have a lot of performances slotted into one day actually produces the best dance there was a time in the 70s maybe up to the 80s 60s 70s 80s where this dance season in margari uh, featured the best of the best and only the best of the best there wasn't any space even for emerging talent it was always established talent and it was only 2 weeks long now you have a season that is spanning 45 days right it's, it starts like almost early december and goes on almost until the 15th 15 20th of january and you have dance performances that start at 9 am in the morning and finish at 9 pm at night so when you have more organizations like sabhas say you have 20 sabhas they need they need content so the content is coming from anybody and everybody so there is a, it's fairly arbitrary many of the times it's also about how persistent you are how good your pr is how uh, you have somebody who is able you know the you know an organization you know the organizer you put in your uh, appeal or your request and you keep at it till the time of programming comes and then you get selected but what worries me is that uh, in all this we have not focused enough on audience development so while we can program artists in 20 spaces simultaneously for for a month from morning to night we have no measure about who's coming who's not coming what kind of people are coming what is the demographic and i feel sometimes you have fairly decent artists six people on stage including the the musicians and five sitting in the audience to watch him or her now that to me is very very sad right so yes i think when you have too much uh you are going to suffer with both quality and with also audience numbers right um and we spoke about the fact that um, not enough venues are kind of optimized for the dance performance a lot of them are have this multipurpose role um what else is it about the infrastructure that dance performances need that you find lacking because there's a lot more that dance needs as compared to say a musical performance I think that uh, the most important thing that we need to note is that all these cultural organizations are run on a voluntary basis. Yeah. There is no uh, real full-time professional who is either a curator or an artistic director or a programming director. Everybody else has a day job and they come together for the margari season. None of these sabhas have an annual cultural programming calendar they have something maybe in a spurt maybe in july something mid year and then there is margari so none of these spaces are purely cultural spaces from morning for 12 months sometimes they get hired out for accountants uh, agms so so these spaces really get let out for uh, it could be for a, a religious discourse of a swami ji right so they end up as being just audit halls for lease and they are run by an overall committee but nobody is a full time 
a person trained in the arts. So I think that's number one. Second, I think for dance, I admit it needs far more support and infrastructure compared to music. We don't have uh, the right kind of technic technicians in place. So we have what we call electricians. We don't have lighting designers. We don't have lighting directors. So dance needs that. We are now, it is a visual medium. We need uh, people who understand what the dancer needs. We need people to understand that you cannot have a bright yellow background or an ugly flexi or an uh, you know unsightly standee with the organization's names or a sponsor's name right behind the dancer's head. Yeah. I mean, these are things that are just not aesthetic. And I think we can use branding in very different ways rather than have it in your face like that. And many times there is a lack of sensitivity both from the organization and the artist is too afraid to say, I want that removed. So we spoke a little earlier about audience development and let's sort of segue from there and talk about uh, the audience demographic, the demographic uh, that come to watch dance performances. There's a larger concern, I think, both with uh, music and dance and the arts in particular about younger audiences not coming. What's your sense there and what's your read on the kind of audiences that now come to watch uh, dance performances? You know, Jen, Chennai has over 1,000 classical dance schools because it's now a big city and it's spread out. But I don't see that translating into audiences by the locals. Now our Margari audiences for dance are 70% from outside Chennai, outside Tamil Nadu, and definitely from outside India. So people plan their holidays now for the Margari season, and they come and they decide to spend at least 10 days, and they've marked it out on their calendar, and they decide to literally uh, what we call Sabah hop. Yeah from one to the other. Now, none of the Sabahs have actually taken this kind of audience. They've not uh, created an audience study and they don't know what the kind of uh, age demographic there is. But one thing I've noticed is that in music, the audience is kind of graying. The people really understand the finer points of music. They are definitely the more mature audience. Yeah. In dance, I'm seeing a lot of young people who come from uh, from other parts of the world, dancers themselves, or dance scholars or dance historians, and uh, they've already marked the people they've been told to watch. So they already have a pre pre-programmed uh, itinerary for themselves, and. What they all, they all wonder about is how do you all pull off such great art with such poor infrastructure, you know? I see. Yeah. So um, we, have a, we have not that many um, non-Indians. The diaspora is in, makes a huge impact and a presence here. They've also been a huge economic factor here. They spend money, they buy the tickets, they are uh, they're in the stores, they are helping retail, they, uh, all the dance tailors are busy, all the dance musicians are busy recording for them, uh, the dance uh, uh, flowers, ornaments, jewelry, everybody's busy uh, supporting this kind of uh, market economy, which is happening in a parallel and it's kind of almost unseen, but it's uh, so significant that it needs to be put on record that it happens. Another thing that I'm going to tell you here that, uh, that um, local dancers feel uh, almost disgruntled by is 
there is an alleged um, slot for sale, performing slots for sale, that they say that if you, you really want, oh, you're coming from um, Kentucky, which means America, you have, you have lots of dollars. So right. this, is, uh, this slot is $500. It's never spoken about. It's never discussed. It's never uh, accepted. It's never, uh, it's never advertised as such. But it's like uh, a great, it's the most publicized secret. And um, though, so that's, that's there as well, slots for sale. Right. So the interesting thing about, again, younger people coming to watch dance performances is that um, they may not be as willing to accept, you know, the same old, same old, let's call it, in terms of the traditional form. Um, what is it? What are the kind of different forms that they're open to? What What is it that you think in your interactions with them, perhaps sometimes that they are, uh, that they say about how dance should change and what they're more accepting of? I find universally that the young, uh, and I, maybe the millennials, if you want to call them millennials, they are not going to be reverential for the sake of being reverential. Just because you're gray-haired and just because you're 75 plus, they're not going to automatically fall at your feet. I really feel that the seniors, um, and we have some amazing people, incredible talent, they've spent so many years uh, at the altar of, of the arts, uh, have to know when it is time to step back. Uh, the young are also impatient. They want to know why the same names are being programmed year after year and why the, the divas and devas are also doing the same thing year after year. Why are they not uh, doing something different with their repertoire? So there is a great hunger to look at what is possible within the form? What kind of creative interventions are possible within the form? Who is going to give you that aha moment? Uh, it can come more, more and more from somebody young and unexpected than from the established. So I find there's a great deal of curiosity, but there's also a great lack of knowledge of the history of the form. Right. They are more intent in saying, oh, I love that costume. Oh, I love the music. Who composed this? Oh, I love that kind of style. Can I learn from this person? So there is a parallel new business model that has now emerged with the dance form. Is called, it's the weekend workshop. So over two days, you learn two dance pieces and you pay $500 and you get the music. So in two days, you learn the two pieces that would have taken you in a traditional way with a traditional guru six months maybe. Okay. And so speaking about the history of uh, dance, so a lot of young practitioners, um, and I think this is not, this may, be, may not just be restricted to them, but there's this tendency to look at Bharatanatyam and Kauchit in this language of the sacred and the divine and this whole tradition of, well, this religious construct associated with it. Um, do you find that that's still the case amongst younger performers or are they breaking out of it more gradually? I think there is a worrying trend amongst the younger uh, Indian performers, diaspora across the world, to really sort of hold on to the idea of sacred and divine more than necessary. I think uh, when I was learning in the 60s, we were taught it as an art. Uh, we did uh, do namaskaram to our guru, but then we, taught it, we were taught it as an art form. We were never drilled into it that this is going to be an offering to the altar of the divine, this is going to be an offering at the feet of the Lord. That was not, that, that was probably in the repertoire. Uh, 
but we were not told it as an overarching principle. This is your tapasya, this is your sacrifice, this is your calling. And I think today anybody can look at anything and say this is, this is a religious object. We can look at our new phone and say this is sacred. You know, the idea of sacred has changed. But what I am seeing, Jayant, is in my generation while growing up, I had a lot of Indian friends of, uh, who were non-Hindus who learnt the form, who learnt Bharatanatyam because they were in love with it. And they did not get the kind of flack that young non-Hindus are getting today. Okay. Yeah. So I know of certain Muslim uh, practitioners of Bharatanatyam who have had to leave their families who have sort of disowned them uh, and go to their guru as refuge because they just love the form so much. I didn't, I didn't hear of it when I was growing up. So how popular, I know you travel a lot um, and you see a lot of performances around the world. Um, there are many dance forms now and Indian classical dances competing with so many other forms. Um, but just picking up from that point where we have a lot of foreigners, NRIs coming to watch classical dance here, how popular is Indian classical dance around the world in different countries? Extremely popular. I would say that those who have Indian dance classes, no matter what style, uh, have lots of students who are interested in learning. I can uh, say for sure in Europe, South America, North America, which includes America and Canada, uh, the UK, Australia, China, Russia, you would have people of various faith denominations who are not worried about that, but who just love the form so much. I know particularly in Germany, I was very, uh, very struck by the fact that Germans of a certain generation uh, particularly wanted to learn uh, dances that had tenderness and sweetness, like a mother to child, because they said that their history was so harsh and so wow. cruel that they wanted the gentleness and the love and the maternal softness that Indian dance gave them. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. So that was for me very interesting. Okay, so I want to draw you out a little bit more about uh, the history of Bharatanatyam. I've read many interesting interviews with you where you keep harping on this point that uh, students, practitioners, viewers should not think of Bharatanatyam as being this 5,000-year-old form that's very rigid in its uh, structure, but it's actually, it actually has a lot more influences coming together. Can you actually uh, talk to me a little bit through that? I just want to sort of pick your brain on those influences, how, what, what, what are some of those important influences to you that sort of make up the form as it is? I think it's just so convenient for us to hitch our dancing wagon to uh, a historical kind of a timeline. And just because we found a little figure of, from the Indus Valley civilization, Mohenjo-daro, with a girl with a hand on her hip, and we call it the dancing girl, we say dance existed. But the avatar of Bharatanatyam that we have inherited today, or me, a, a, a product of modern independent India, is not even 300 years old. Okay. So we're talking of a form that was, uh, in a sense, modernized and updated in the 18th, 19th, 18th century, uh, predominantly, predominantly under the patronage of uh, the Tanjaur Sarfoji Maharaj, the Maratha rulers, and before that the Nayaks. And yes, we had dance, dancing uh, in the courts of the Pandya rulers. So the tradition of dancing did exist, but not 5,000 years ago. And the present form is what four brothers, 
we call them the Tanjavur Quartet or the Tanjur Quartet, four brothers, shaped a form, what we call the Margam. How do you start and how do you end? All the various items in progression. And these were four remarkable brothers who were also like polymaths in their own, in their own way. They uh, were Vagyakaras, which means they were able to write, compose the music, sing, conduct, and they would, then they were linguistic. They would uh, write in Telugu, which was the court language for the king and the court. They would do the exact same composition in Tamil for the people. They would uh, substitute the, the Lord Shivan or the ruling Maharaja. And uh, the women danced and the men uh, were the teachers. So if there was a visiting Nawab, they would do a salam. If, okay. if it was part of the choreography. If there was an Englishman, they would do a salute. So uh, it was so uh, flexible, it was so porous, it was so accommodating. And uh, yes, they belonged to a certain uh, community who nurtured the arts, and they were all poets, and they were multifaceted. They not only sang, they also played instruments. So they lived, lived, they lived the art. They lived the life of the art. Now, this is a very complex history. And uh, today, it's too simple to just uh, put cast, the colors of caste on it. We shouldn't do that. Uh, we are speaking in a state which is still vitiated by caste politics. Of course. And uh, Bharatanatyam and Margari, always that uh, uh, caste rears its ugly head. And I ask myself this question, and I don't know if the listeners of this podcast would. We pride ourselves in the Margari season of being the oldest, longest, continually running, privately funded arts festival in the world. Yeah. Without a penny of state funding. And this is kind of unheard of. Nowhere else will you not have some state funding. And we don't have one big corporate either. It's not branded with one corporate. And yet the festival runs with a whole kind of slew of volunteer uh, methods. Why is it that the Tamil Nadu government doesn't take pride in it? Why is it that we don't see it on our national tourism calendar? Why is it that our retail establishments, our hotels, why, don't we ha why aren't we talking about it? So why is it restricted geographically to like four or five little uh, neighborhoods of Chennai, and we just say it's the largest festival in the world. Today, the world is large, but it's also shrinking. But as we speak, beyond Gemini Circle, people don't, haven't heard of Marguerite, or they say That's there's true. something happening. Uh, so I think that there is a branding exercise there for those who are interested in it. That larger point about other, peop um, other people recognizing or, you know, even knowing that there's a Margari festival and, well, not, not a straight point here, but you, you spoke very beautifully about the history of Bharatanatyam in the last answer. Um, and I was wondering, do you really have, is it because of your kind of academic bent of mind that you know that? Is that, uh, is, are there any, according to you, uh, good solid histories of Bharatanatyam that are written? Do we document these things well enough, according to you? More and more now in the last 20 years, we are having some very excellent scholarly writing about Bharatanatyam's complex and multicultural history. We've had some amazing scholars who were um, Muslim. We've had some amazing Christian scholars who've all written about the form, but not more about the text and the music and the lyrics of people who have composed 
for the form that was ultimately performed as Bharatanatyam, which incidentally was uh, called Sadir or Chinna Melam before it was sort of renamed in the Sanskritized form of Bharatanatyam okay. for modern India. Uh, so, yes, there is uh, much more writing now available for young people than even when I was learning the form. So I had to or I had to enroll in Kalakshetra because they were the only people who had a dance theory course okay. about dance theory. We only knew the practical side. We were never taught the theory. So yes, with my intellectual curiosity and academic, I had to go further and learn more and find out. And the more you uh, try to unpack the many layers of this form, you find that it's extremely sophisticated, but it's also very complex. The history has a lot of social and political um, nails and thorns in it. Let me give you an, uh, one historically, uh, a historical fact, Jayant. Sure. Uh, in Lucknow and in um, Tamil Nadu, during the independence movement, uh, the, the dancing women, people from that community, the Tawaifs of Banaras and Lucknow, and the Isevalalar communities, the dancing women of Tamil Nadu, approached Mahatma Gandhi separately and uh, offered their jewelry for sale for and all their ornaments, what was most precious to them, their instruments, ornaments, and said, we want to contribute to the uh, to the freedom movement. Okay. And uh, Mahatma Gandhi rejected them on both sides, saying they are morally tainted. So uh, that was th that must have been extremely hurtful for these for these artists. And in North India, they said, "So what do you want us to do?" He said, "Go throw them in the Ganga." They did. They went oh. and threw their instruments in the Ganga. Really? Yeah. So and this is recorded as well. I'm not giving you something that is not recorded. So. We, have, we haven't um, acknowledged them. So I tell young dancers that every time, wherever you are, you are in the world, when you stand on stage with your, your feet together and your hands on your hips, give a silent acknowledgement to all those brave women who have endured a lot of this kind of censure and derision and who have held the art so that all of us could learn it. Today in Canada and Australia, it's uh, very common when you start any event, even a political event, where you first say, we acknowledge we stand on stolen land. That It's almost like yeah. doing Vata Piganapatim there. It literally is. I think dancers must remember that uh, both in Kathak and Bharatanatyam particularly, that we owe a lot to those uh, fiercely dedicated artists who during the independence struggle uh, were really pushed aside, you know, and treated very, very badly. Uh, not just by the colonialists, but I'm talking of even of upper class elite Indians who are preparing for a new India. So for young people, it's important to learn the history. It's important to know uh, who held on to the tradition, who sustained it, and where the through line is coming from. It just hasn't just come. Your guru could have learned from somebody else from, who could have learned from somebody else. Many of us were prevented uh, from learning from traditional guru families because my, my own mother had to fight an ongoing battle with her father-in-law just to give me a chance to dance. Wow. So uh, my father would deflect the all the, you know, stop it, nobody will marry her, this, that. So it happened even in my time. 
in the 50s and 60s. So now it is a sense of pride. I've, I'm on a flight and somebody sits next to me and said, my daughter's a dancer, my wife's a dancer, but now it's a badge you wear. But I do know of a time where uh, families who wanted, who were, who are now uh, called about like the architects of a new Chennai uh, really had those kinds of reservations about the performing arts. Right. So we've been we've been talking for nearly half an hour and we haven't yet got to your work, which is exemplary. And I want to spend some time on it. Okay. Um, you've won awards for contemporary dance. You've kind of created a, a, um, a separate idiom for yourself. And I want to talk about that briefly. So uh, Neo Bharatam, uh, the form that you created, how much of it is a result basically of you wanting to move away from this idea of your, your own evolution in dance being understood through this traditional framework? I was a very good student, as they say in Tamil, right. when I was learning. And I was a very good student and I learned Bharatanatyam and Kathakali and Mohiniyatam. So very early on, my mother realized I was very curious and my body was not adhering to just one form and I was wanting to explore different ways of moving and I studied theatre. So already there was a lot of vocabulary in my body and I was very impatient with the Bharatanatyam repertoire which always had male composers writing in the feminine tense and about women always yearning or pining to be one with a man, God. So uh, my own life took me away from India to the United States and in television and and then I had ruptures in my personal life. So uh, this brought me to a questioning about how does this form speak to me now? Yeah. So I had to find a way to move and uh, themes in which to work in which my art and my life could come closer together. I couldn't suspend one part of it and then pretend to be the good student I was before I left. So those 15 years uh, away from India was very important for me, shaping uh, my, my political views about arts. So when I started creating a form, I decided that the only true story you have in life, the only unique one is yours. So Neo Bharatam is uh, both a way of my moving, but using it also as an autobiographical practice. So it's a practice that I can't really teach somebody. But uh, there are tools that I can teach young people that I've learned from both uh, my training as well as life and, and my theater work. Uh, I'm also uh, a public speaker. I have, I'm a trained singer. So I use spoken word text in the work. Gradually, my work moved away from what was appropriate for the season, for Marguerite programming. Yeah. And uh, which was all right with me because I always felt that if you want to create something new, you have to be a willing to give up something. So I had to give up an audience. I had to give up. Even my own guru was very disappointed. Why don't you go back? You were such a good dancer. Why don't you go back to doing the repertoire? And my own parents couldn't understand what the search was about. So you have to give up something in order to try to find something else. So my audience uh, was, um, however, theater people, literature festivals, sort of different spaces. Uh, and I think... Over the years, I think by just walking the talk and I think by just sticking to what I really fiercely believe in, I've, I don't perform nearly as much as so many of my colleagues who are classical dancers because there aren't that many avenues and openings and festivals in India for the kind of work I do. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I do find uh, my avenues uh, overseas, in cities like Bombay or Calcutta, and in smaller venues, in interdisciplinary work that has music and theatre and 
cinema and poetry and that those kinds of spaces but that doesn't mean i don't love classical dance classical music and i'm dressed today and i'm doing my own version of sabha hopping i'm on my way to see two different performances after our conversation uh this is not easy uh, in a way but it's also i uh, let me tell you jent chennai is one of the most welcoming open cities if you have something to say with the right intention don't forget that this is the soil that this is the land that birthed kalakshetra which was you know the birth of modern yeah. bharatanatyam this is where chandralekha chose to move to to create her own modern idiom and this is where the theosophical society is this is where so there's something about the spirit of this place it doesn't make a huge fuss but if you're really good it allows you to uh, allow you to deepen your art form and if you if you have something worthwhile to say they will listen and as uh, in the kevin costner film uh, field of dreams he, yeah. they say build it and they will come so <laughs> so build a practice and you will find your audience and are there any particular themes that you're exploring uh, these days uh, with your dance i like the idea of taking familiar themes and turning it on its head so um, my two current uh, works that are uh, inactive uh, performing repertoire is a million sitas in which i tell the story of the ramayana through the through the eyes of the women surpanakha mantara ahalya and mandodri and sita so um, for those of you who know the ramayana you know that there won't be a story if these women hadn't done what they did right right and then i have uh, another work called matrika in which i use uh, my personal diary of my grandmother and my mother who were called uh, one was called saraswati and one is leela so i i i take the goddess myths of saraswati and i take the goddess myth of uh, lakshmi i turn lakshmi on its head because it's not just the lady of the lotus sitting there beautifully but she is now today what we worship is the fashion ramp walk uh, movie actress glam page 3 bling uh, you know retail shopping person that's the lakshmi we want we want product we want stuff so it's and then meenakshi who had a third breast refuses to to lose it when she sees shiva as per legend she says you know you've got three eyes and i've got three breasts we're both two freaks we really fit together <laughs> you know yeah so i like the idea of taking traditional stories and um, you know giving and and updating it and tweaking it because and if you say how can you do it i'm saying that there are so many there's so much alternate literature uh, uh, that has been written in this vein irreverent humorous where women have a point of view and there are sculptures in southern tamil nadu of meenakshi holding her third breast it's like and she's leaning forward as if saying now what do you want me to do do with this you know <laughs> this is not going away so i think that um, you can take this and i like the idea of adding humor to my work I think we need to laugh a bit. I think dancers take themselves too seriously. We think of ourselves as walking vehicles of God, channels of inspiration. I think inspiration can come from anywhere. It can come from a baby, it can come from a postcard, it can come from something you see outside your window. So if we just love what we do and we love life and have a 360 degree view of it, I think we can become far better artists. Right. And a good place to end just briefly uh, I think is to go back to this issue of uh, dance and spaces because we started our conversation talking about the suburbs in the city and how there's 
a lot of overload of performances and not a lot of space for preparation for individual performances that might kind of deviate from the uh, the traditional structure um how important do you think alternative spaces are for dance as a way forward um as a venue for artists to kind of experiment and do something different these are becoming increasingly important and happily increasingly popular i myself run what i call the arangam studio series which is a little studio in my home it opens out to the garden and it seats 50 and i've always had wonderful response when i've programmed artists who are not usually programmed in the season so uh, there are uh, spaces on terraces now that are opening up small little black box spaces that even seat 60 people 50 people artists who are very secure and sure of their art love to perform in these spaces they're not intimidated by the fact that it's small and this is where a mature artist can actually tailor their performance and their presentation with the space in mind because remember the audience is within touching distance of you and that is a very very uh, different kind of intimate viewing experience that no big auditorium can give you so i would really like to see more of these kinds of spaces Uh, emerge people with homes th- that you know can be opened up to that and even gated communities these big apartment complexes need to have a little performance space built within their grounds not just a gym and not just a recreation but i really hope that builders will also think about this because we're in- increasingly live- living in these gated bubbles and we are so uh, cut off from the flow of everyday life so um i'm hoping that small spaces really become the norm for the next 10 years at least in a country like india because that's what we need okay you've been very generous with your time with us today and thank you so much for joining us for this podcast thank you jain it's been a pleasure